The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. And now, if you will take your Bibles uh, and turn them to the book of Romans, chapter 11, on this Sunday morning, as we uh, prepare for Christmas on Friday, I hope that you're close to finish with your shopping for gifts and that you're ready to enjoy the celebration of Christ's birth. Uh, with this pandemic and concerns about the virus, uh, shopping in stores has declined. And most of you are aware that uh, the amount of people that can be in the stores is is a problem and leaves lines outside. And so everybody has turned to online shopping. That seems to be the way to go. And I'm in favor of that all the time because I hate to shop. Uh, I don't want to go to the store with or without the danger of contracting a virus. But there are some who think that online shopping diminishes the gift because there isn't as much time shopping, uh, time and effort spent to select that perfect gift. But these are people that have never met my wife who can spend hours on her iPad just clicking away at the 10 billion items or so that Amazon sells. Well, today I'd like to talk to you about gift giving, but this is not our gifts that we give to each other, but the gift that came from God and the gift that was given on the first Christmas. In the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul explained how that every person has within them the innate knowledge of God. Inherently, we know that God exists. And we know that we are responsible to God, who is the supreme authority. And yet, with the wickedness of the human heart, we suppress that responsibility. And although our wicked hearts in our natural state does not acknowledge God, we still see his existence Uh, in our creation by him, in certain acts that we do towards each other. Now, one of these is the desire to give gifts. We, We like to bless others. And a feeling of concern for others comes from the image of God that we are created in. We were created in God's image. Now, if the only influence that we had in our lives was the temptation to sin as Satan tempted Adam... That would never produce in us a desire to bless others. Satan has no interest in God's creation other than to destroy man. And although Adam was guilty of the original sin and we are fallen creatures because of this, there is still this evidence in us of the benevolent God who created us. Within us, we have the knowledge of good and evil, and that causes us at times to act kindly and decently towards each other. The image of God in us, though, has been marred by sin, but it is still enough that we know that God exists, although not enough to put us into a relationship with God. It's enough to cause us to recognize that we must live well with each other and we should treat each other with respect. But the marring of God's image in us prevents perfect attitudes. And at times it causes strife. And it's this imperfect attitude in the marred image that causes sin. And it's what separates us from the thrice holy God. And it is the perfect image of God that he desires to restore in us by the gift of redemption. Now, it is certain by reading scriptures like those that we find in Romans that God planned and predestined the gift of redemption for those that he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then in time and at the right time, he gave sinners the ultimate, most desperately needed gift. For example, in Galatians chapter four, the Bible says that in the fullness of time, Christ came. That is at the right time when it was the right time for Christ to become incarnate. God gave his gift, the gift of his son to the world. Now, in this text of Romans chapter 11 in verses 25 through 29, uh, there is a repetition of the prophecies that was given in the Old Testament 
And I'd like you to look at this in verse number 25, Romans 11, verse 25, where Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sakes. And now verse 29, this is our text verse for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now, in in this scripture, the Apostle Paul is explaining to the Roman church how that God is waiting for the right time to restore Israel to prominence as his chosen people. Why would God do this? Israel rejected God. Why would he do this to want to restore Israel? Well, it's because he made them a promise. And that promise is as as ancient as Abraham, uh, to whom he said that he would make a father of many nations. Abraham is the father of the faithful. He is the father of those who come to God, uh, not by works of righteousness they do, but by fully trusting in the righteousness of God that is given by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God's gifts are without repentance. And this means that they are unchangeable, they are unalterable, they are immutable. When God makes a promise, he always fulfills that promise. And this is what he did to Israel. He made a promise and he will fulfill that promise. Now, I'd like to lift this verse out and apply it. We can apply it to any promise that God makes, but I want to prom- uh, apply it to the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15. This is back at the very beginning of the creation. This is when the image of God in us was stained by sin. Immediately upon the fall of Adam, God made a promise that he would raise a redeemer for his people who would crush the head of Satan, the one who had just tempted Adam into sin and Adam fell. And God made a promise that that he would restore the image of God in the faithful. God spoke to Satan and he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, that one verse is not the whole story. And so the rest of the Bible is given to develop this promise until in Galatians in the New Testament, we read, but when the fullness of time was come. God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, God made a promise at the beginning that he would give the world a gift. And it was a gift because it wasn't required. It was a gift because there was no obligation on God's part to give it. It was a gift because it can never be merited. And it was a gift because God has a desire to bless his people by giving them eternal life in his son. Now, Paul expressed this in another way in 2 Corinthians 9, 15. He said, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And when Paul said unspeakable, he meant the gift is indescribable. The gift is inexpressible in human language. Our minds are incapable of understanding and fully describing this gift. Now, before the pandemic, we were in a a long study of the tabernacle and sacrifices. And you remember how I labored each week to describe the many facets of God's beautiful gift of Jesus Christ that is shown in the tabernacle. The gold and silver in the furnishings, the the light from the exquisite golden lampstand shimmering in its reflection off of golden boards, the precious jewels and the uh, breastplate of the high priest, the blue, the purple and the scarlet colors. These all depict the beauty of God's gift. 
God promised a gift and his word is immutable. It is unchangeable. It is without repentance. And so true to his word on a night 2000 years ago, the savior of the world was born. But today I'd like to talk to you about this gift. How do we describe an indescribable gift? And I would say we do it with great difficulty. I've spent my entire life trying to describe it. There aren't enough superlatives to describe it. So the best that I can do for you is just to put it in simplistic human terms because I am just a simple human. What is the gift that God gave at Christmas? Well, my first attempt at describing it is to say that it is a mysterious gift. It's a gift that was veiled throughout the Old Testament. It was a gift that was promised to come, but who it was and exactly how it would arrive was mysterious. Those of you that have were with us in that tabernacle study, you see how mysterious those things are until they are explained to us. And so there was no one in the Old Testament who would imagine that the gift that God would give would come in this way. And this gift came to us by what we know and as and what theologians call the mystery of the incarnation. Now, through the Old Testament, and though it gives us uh, wonderful passages such as Isaiah 53, uh, that passage speaks of the suffering Savior. It speaks of one coming to earth who would die for sin, yet Having that prophecy for so long did not mean that people understood it perfectly, that they understood that God meant that he would send his own son in the flesh. Genesis 3.15 is not enough to explain to us that God himself would become man, that God would take on the nature of humans and that he would come and live among us. Now, I know that Adam was the most intelligent man that lived because God created him the perfect man in his image. But do we think that Adam understood that the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 meant God's own son? No, it's likely that Eve thought that the promise, and Adam probably thought as well, that this promise was fulfilled in their first son, Cain. And we know how wrong that was. In, in John chapter 1, the scripture says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that John speaks of is Jesus Christ, the living word, the logos, who became flesh and dwelled among us. Well, God in the flesh is a concept that both Jews and Gentiles had trouble with. The Gentiles couldn't believe that God would become flesh, that he could become human because the flesh was sinful. Oh, they believed that matter was inherently evil. And so uh, they were confused by this. But when the Bible says that flesh is sinful, it doesn't mean the literal flesh that covers our bones. It means the disposition of the mind, what we are naturally. Now, the Jews, likewise, had trouble with this because they would never allow that the Messiah would die. They were looking for Messiah to come and establish a kingdom. So to think that he would die does not make sense to them. And this gift is indescribable because human minds could never touch the reality that that Jesus could be 100 percent God and 100 percent man. There is no such thing as two distinct natures like this in any of God's creatures. And indeed, he wasn't God's creature. He was God. He was part of the triune God that was made in the likeness of human flesh. The spirit of God became perceptible to human senses. He was tangible. Now, the Apostle John said this in his first epistle in chapter one. He wrote that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled to the word of life for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. That ye also 
They have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And what John says there is, we know that he was flesh. He, we saw him. We touched him. We bear witness that he is real and that he is eternal life. Now, the incarnation of Christ is an essential part of our faith because for us to be saved, for us to see heaven, our sins must be forgiven. God's justice must be satisfied. Sin must be punished. And this is what Christ came to do in the flesh. He came to bear God's wrath against sin. And that is what Jesus did at the cross. Jesus came down from heaven. He was made in the likeness of man so that he could go to the cross and die so he could die as our sin substitute he came to take the wrath of God that we deserve now today as we think about this that thought is common to us we've heard the story many many times we we can relate the meaning of those word pictures that were in the old testament in places like the tabernacle things that Back then, they didn't fully understand. We understand them better because we have the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And uh, we've heard the story repeated many times so that you can ask people that really are not religious. And you, you ask them, what did Jesus do? And they can tell you, especially here at Christmas time, they will tell you, well, this whole story is about God becoming a man, that Jesus was born as a baby, and this was a man or that grew up and lived a good life, and then he was crucified on the cross. And there are many people that can recite these facts, but they have no personal application of them. There is no wonder and amazement in this how that could be. But that's not how Paul saw it. No, this miracle of the incarnation stood at the pinnacle of mind-boggling events. Never in the history of the world had anything like this happened. How could the transcendent spirit God become like us, to become like people? And further, it's too much to imagine that God would give his son to die. That act of God forsaking God In the death of his son, that is unfathomable. The greatest theologians can't explain that. And so, how can we? Paul expressed his wonder at the end of Romans 11. As he contemplated this unrepentant promise, he couldn't help but to interrupt his thoughts. And in an explosion of wonder, he wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and shall be recompensed to him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Oh yes, the, the miracle of the incarnation makes this gift too high for human words. Such a mysterious gift. God becoming man, God going to the cross to suffer and die for sinners of the incarnation and God becoming man to die on a criminal's cross. That is a mystery. It's beyond us. But then this mystery compounds because we dare not leave Christ on the cross. There's another part of this mystery, and this is the mystery of the resurrection The birth of Christ, the life of Christ and the death of Christ, all of that is meaningless if not for the mystery of the resurrection. Is this truly a mystery? I mean, in the Old Testament, there are resurrections. Elijah raised a a widow's son from the dead. Elisha raised the child of a Shunammite woman. And then there's this this very strange thing that happened in Second Kings, chapter 14, Elisha, the great prophet, died. They buried him. But then there was another man that died, and they were in the process of burying that man. And they spied a a band of marauding Moabites. And so they hurriedly needed to get away. And so they very quickly threw this dead man into Elisha's grave. And when that dead man touched the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. The Jews knew these stories. 
There were other resurrections the Jews knew about. They knew what Jesus did throughout his life uh, in his ministry. He, he raised people from the dead. But what they had never seen or heard was a dead body that came back to life under its own power. Now, resurrections, that, that's strange enough. But a body that lives again by its own power without something from the outside somehow influencing it? How does that happen? Those things don't happen. They never happen. But that's what Jesus did to prove his power over death, to prove that he was the supernatural God. He came back to life. And in that power rests the ability to bring all believers back to life. Our resurrection to life is one of those Precious promises that's guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection power. God said it would happen, and God's gifts are without repentance. Now, this is truly a mysterious thing, that the dead could be raised. And it's increasingly mysterious when you think of bodies that have been dead for centuries. You know, we think, well, maybe we could somehow, some way. Believe that someone who has just recently died, something might happen to that person come back to life, comes back to life. You know, and people pray for things like that. But that, that can't happen. But how much stranger, how, how much more impossible that someone who died centuries ago, that their bodies have decomposed, the molecules of that body have been distributed to the ground, to the air, sucked up into plants and digested again as food for men and animals. How shall those bodies live again? It's a mystery. And it's the awe and wonder of God's gift of Jesus Christ that makes that possible. Paul could only say God promised it. God never breaks a promise. His gifts are without repentance. Now, we, we continue our examination of God's gift by noting that it is a miraculous gift. Everything about this gift is wrapped in the wrapper of miracles. Now, certainly the incarnation was a miracle. The resurrection was a miracle. Christ's entire life was one of miracles. But let me point out two miracles in which God used human Intervention. Now, the first is the miracle of prophecy. Uh, I've just read a moment ago prophecies from the Old Testament. And this is one of the hardest aspects of Christianity that atheists and agnostics must deal with. How do you explain these prophecies, many prophecies in the Bible from hundreds of years before his birth? And there it tells about his birth, his life and his death. Now, I introduced that somewhat to you last week in the sermon when we were talking about the sword of the spirit. How is it that over a period of 1500 years of the writing of the Old Testament, how is it that men who never met each other, most of them didn't, how is it that they came together and with perfect harmony of mind? made the same predictions concerning the coming of Israel's Messiah. How could they know such intimate details and be perfectly accurate? Oh, I, I love the story of Jesus' birth that we read in Matthew. Now, we didn't get into the second chapter where it talks about the wise men that came to see him. These were men who were students of Scripture. They didn't live in Israel. But they were descended from those who had contact with the prophets of Israel who were once in captivity in Babylon. These were descendants of those who knew prophets like Daniel, who began schools of prophecy and biblical education. Now, these men from the east carefully observed the scriptures and they were students of the stars, the magnificent creation of God. And one night they saw a star in the distant west, in the direction of Israel, and they knew that it was a sign that the promised one had been born. Now, the star was most likely the glory of God that appeared specially to them. So they traveled the long distance to Jerusalem to, to find the child, to worship him. But what they found instead was, to their amazement, the ignorance of God's people. 
that the Jews in the holy city of Jerusalem were unaware that just two miles away in Bethlehem, the king of all kings was born. Now, the appearance of these wise men from so far away looking for this child piqued the curiosity of the Jewish leaders and of Herod. And so they went to the scriptures to find out what the prophet Micah said. We read this in Micah 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Where was Jesus born? Exactly in the place where the prophet wrote 700 years before. And Micah's not the only prophet that foretold it. We looked at other prophecies, didn't we? Isaiah chapter 7. We looked at Isaiah chapter 9. And then I've mentioned Isaiah chapter 53. And there are prophecies in Zechariah. There are some in Malachi. And, of course, some in Daniel. And some by David in the Psalms. In fact, the prophecy in Daniel is so precise that more than 400 years before Christ was born, Daniel gave the exact year this would happen. Those wise men studied that prophecy. And when they saw the glory of God, they knew Christ was born. They had the year marked on their calendar. Now, you read through the Old Testament, you see it many times. Even Jacob when he blessed his sons all the way back in Genesis, spoke a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And there are multitudes of prophecies about the birth, much said about his life, about his death. And so Paul and Peter and John and other New Testament writers marveled at prophecy fulfilled. There is no way that you can explain the accuracy of these prophecies without acknowledging the wisdom of Almighty God. God is miraculous in his wisdom, so wonderful that human tongues can adequately express it. And so Paul wrote, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God used humans to relate his infallible prophecies. He told them Christ was coming. And his gifts are immutable. They are without repentance. But what of this other miracle that God used? Human intervention. Well, this was the miracle of virginity. It is the miracle that Christ was born of a virgin. Matthew 123. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. Now, I know there are. Many who look at this text and they they see this virgin birth and they say, well, virgin births happen all of the time. There's in vitro fertilization and there's the implanting of a fertilized egg into the womb of a woman. But, of course, the miracle of the virgin birth was long before the science of in vitro fertilization. And more importantly, it differentiates Because this was a birth without the sperm of a man. Human fertilization was not involved in this birth. And there are no human births without the ovum and the sperm. This is the only one there ever was or ever shall be. Jesus was born without a human father. Now, the scripture says that Mary never knew a man. That is, she never had relations with a man. And so the baby had no human father. The scripture says the Holy Spirit came upon her and she was with child. Well, that was information that Joseph was keenly interested in because he was about to marry her. And he found out that she was already pregnant and he never imagined what the explanation was. And he never would have believed it if God hadn't sent the angel Gabriel to him. We read it earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. When Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, he began to think about it. How could he discreetly end this betrothal? Oh, he was a just man and he loved Mary. He wasn't willing to shame her publicly. And then this happened. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. 
for he shall save his people from their sins. In verses 22 and 23, it said this happened to fulfill prophecy. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Why is that so important? Why is a virgin birth necessary? Well, it was necessary so that Jesus would be born without a sin nature. See, the Bible teaches that the sinful nature is passed to the child through the seed of the man. Every person in the world has this sinful nature, and that's because we are all born of human of a human father. Now, the prophecy in Genesis 3:15 called the Messiah the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. Adam's sin is passed on in childbirth, and so if you have a human father, you are a sinner. Jesus had no human father, which means he had no sin nature. And he was not a sinner by birth, and neither was he a sinner by practice. And by remaining sinless, he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. How do we explain this miracle? Well, I can give you the facts of it, but I can't. Explain the physiology. I don't know. These things don't happen. How the mighty God packed himself into the tiny egg of a Galilean virgin, I find no words to explain. The gift is indescribable, but I know that it's true because the gifts of God are without repentance. Now, Genesis 3.15 and the original promise are ones that cannot be taken away. Now, now, thirdly, the immutable gift of God, the gift that is not repented of, this gift is a matchless gift. Have you ever been given a gift that you didn't know what to do with? Over the years, my closet has become packed full of clothes that were given as gifts, but I never wear them. I have a tie, a tie hanging in my closet. That was a very thoughtful gift that was given by old John Harrison. That was just a wonderful gesture that that John would give that to me. But unfortunately, it wasn't appropriate to wear with my suit on Sunday. Now, some of you will come with a Mickey Mouse tie, patriotic ties, sports ties, your favorite team, the 49ers, Green Bay Packers, whatever that might be. But no offense to you. That's okay with me. But Mickey Mouse in the pulpit, that that's just a little bit further than what I want to go. And I've received other gifts that I'm just never going to use. Now, I don't want you to take that as a sign not to give me gifts. No, bring me many gifts and bring them often. The next wonderful thing, though, about this gift that God gave is that it's exactly what we needed. It fits us. It fits our deepest need. Now, above all other things, this is something that every person in the world needs. Now, I can't imagine that you could... Shop on Amazon among those 10 billion items and you would find a gift like this. Where do you find a gift that is always perfect for all people of all nations in all ages in all locations in the history of the world? Nobody has a gift that works for everybody and needed more for everybody. Why? Well, it's because of this all-inclusive, all-important statement in Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's it. That's the reason that this gift stands out above all others. Everybody needs it because everybody has sinned. Everyone has come short of the glory of God. Now, that's not a trite statement. It's an often quoted verse. We all know the verse, but that is not a trite statement. That is a heavy beyond the minds imagination statement, because the consequence of that statement is that the entire human race, that every person born on this planet is born in sin and is on their way to an eternity in hell. God gave his precious gift because he loves unworthy souls and he gave the gift to prevent you. From going to hell. Every person is on the way to hell. And I don't know anyone in their right mind. Who would be content to know. That they would leave this life. To enter a place of unimaginable suffering. A place of eternal torment. And a place that no one escapes. Nobody has a who has a slight inkling of what that means. Would say I don't need this gift. 
that keeps me out of hell. Now, this makes the gift of Jesus Christ a matchless gift because there's nothing that works for salvation. There's nothing that works for escape from hell but this gift. And I want you to keep that in mind, because if you get nothing else from the from all of this sermon, you need to know that this gift of God is not a white elephant gift. Not only can you use this gift, but you desperately need it. This is a gift you need to pursue. You go after this with all the energy that you can put into it. You strive to obtain it. And when you do, you find out it was there all the time and it was free for the asking. So think about that. And I want to give you two more reasons this gift is matchless. With this gift, we receive the matchless peace of God. Now, there's several ways to speak of peace. In, in the scriptures, the Bible describes peace in at least three different areas. And these areas appear distinctly in the writings of Paul. Now, let me just very quickly describe them to you. The first expression that Paul uses is peace with God. In Romans 5.1, it says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most important peace that God gives, that Jesus gives, because the Bible says again that we are born enemies of God. Now, remember, all have sinned, and so uh, it's sin that makes you the enemy of God. And the primary purpose of the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, was to enable us to have peace with God. Now, this is a peace that we call a reconciling peace. Now, I'd rather be at war with anyone else than to be at war with God. And yet... The Bible teaches that all people are at war with God. And it's a war that you can't win. It's a war that you will never win. So the only way to have peace with God is to have it through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us how this peace comes in Colossians 1.20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say... Whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, peace comes through the blood of the cross. That is, by Christ dying for our sins and paying the debt that we owe to God. Now, secondly, Jesus gives the peace of God. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace, the peace of God is in the mind. It's the settling of the mind. It's to be at ease. The peace of God calms and comforts in times of trials and tribulations. Now, people will try everything but the right thing in hopes of bringing peace. Uh, they turn to drugs and alcohol. Some think that sex of any kind will help them. And so they experiment with every deviant form of it. And all that they find and all these other things are nothing but aggravated troubles. They heap trouble on more trouble. They've already got troubled hearts and they get more troubled hearts. Only Jesus brings the peace of God. Then thirdly is peace from God. And we find this expression in the beginning of every one of Paul's epistles. Romans 1.7, 1 Corinthians 1.3, 2 Corinthians 1.2, Galatians 1.3, Ephesians 1.2, Philippians 1.2, Colossians 1.2, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1.2, 1, 1 Timothy 1.2, 2 Timothy 1.2, Titus 1.4, Philemon, verse number 3. Paul starts every one of his epistles with with this with this terminology, peace from God. So that was a very important concept for him. And every time that that expression is used, it is associated with Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk of peace from God, God bringing peace, we can apply that to salvation. We can apply it to the serenity that comes from salvation. But here in this Christmas season, we can apply it to the world at large, just as the angels did when they announced the birth of Christ. The angels said, and on earth, peace. And what does the Bible say about Christ bringing peace? 
It's another prophecy in Isaiah chapter two, verse four. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. That is peace in the whole world. Peace between people. And this peace speaks of the millennial reign of Christ when he will rule the world and all men will be at peace. Now, today we try to bring peace. We try to bring it through the United Nations. And do you think that the United Nations tells people that Jesus can bring them peace? No, the world despises Jesus. He's not in any of the peace negotiations between nations. And the result is there is no peace and there won't be until Christ brings it himself. So we pour billions of dollars every year into a rat hole of the United Nations because peace will always be elusive until the prince of peace, the unspeakable gift of God, comes again to bring peace over the whole world. This is a matchless gift because there is nothing that brings peace, the peace that you need in all ways like this gift. But the last one, this really makes the gift matchless. Thank God that he doesn't repent of this promise. And it is the matchless presence of God. The angel told Joseph, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Jesus is God with us. But you might wonder, how does Jesus Give us the presence of God when he's no longer here. He came. He left. So how do we have the presence of God? Well, 2000 years ago, Jesus walked on this earth. He chose 12 men to be his companions. And for three years, they were with him every day. They followed him. They spent their days with him. They ate with him. They slept with him. They learned from him. And over those three years, they were very close. They learned what a valuable friend he was. And you might think there could even be a little bit of pride in them because they were his closest companions. Others weren't. But having learned from him and seeing the many miracles he did and being so blessed to be in the company of such a gifted person and especially being in the presence of God, they believed he was. They were deeply sorrowful when Jesus said that he must leave them and they couldn't go with him. So they asked the same question that you would ask. Where are you going? Jesus, if you're going to leave, we want to go with you. But he said no. And that was disheartening. They loved him. They didn't want to be without him. You know what Jesus said? He said, I am going to give you something better. You see, while Jesus was here, there were times when they weren't in his presence. Sometimes he would go off to be alone. They weren't with him in the times of prayer, uh, especially when he went alone and prayed to his father in the garden. That was before the crucifixion. They surely weren't with him when he was on the cross and when he was in the tomb. He promised them something better, which was his internal presence, not externally, but internally a presence that they wouldn't lose no matter where they were. And what is this presence that he promised? It was the Holy Spirit, which is also called the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, now there is a verse where you find the Trinity. You find the Holy Spirit. You find the spirit of God, the father. You find the spirit of Christ and all that's considered one. Could you imagine a gift that's better than this? When you receive Christ as Savior, he's not external. He's not God somewhere out there in some distant place. You just hope someday that you'll be with him. No, he is God in you. As Colossians says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is God internally in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he comes to live in you forever when you trust him as Savior. You know what this is? It's the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God never repents of. It is redemption. It's the the restoration of, of God's image in you. 
As John wrote, Christ will appear and we shall be like him. In fact, the very life that you live in your salvation is permeated through and through with Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what makes Christians different from all other people? It is this matchless gift. God gave his son and by faith he lives in us. And this gift can never be taken away. It's a gift that you can never lose. And it's a gift that not only do you have Christ, but he has you. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now, notice that Paul says the gift and the calling. Pay attention to this word calling. Paul often used this word, and it always refers to the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God makes sure, he makes sure that his people receive the gift. He leaves none of his people without it. Well, I must close, and I want to make just one other critical point. God's gifts are without repentance, and this is also true concerning another gift, And that is the promise that the father made to his son. He promised to give him a people that would glorify him. He promised to give him an inheritance of people, just like he promised Abraham an inheritance of people. And it turns out that these people are one and the same. Abraham was the father of the faithful, and the faithful are the ones that the father gave to his son as a gift. Now, in effect, then, we become a mysterious gift. Why would God save unworthy sinners like us? We become a miraculous gift. And that miracle is in the new birth. Regeneration is something that only God can do. We become a matchless gift. We're made in the image of Jesus Christ. We're made like the one who has no equal. We are separated from the world. They can't touch us in beauty and splendor because we're united in Christ. Paul said the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And he said that so that Israel would know that every promise, though that didn't seem that it was going to come true, then every promise that he gave, he intends to fulfill. And the world will not end until every promise of God is made good. And listen, God promised that he would save you by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a promise that you can bank on. God will never take his promise back. It's an immutable gift. Trust him and your place in heaven is sure. Christ is God's gift to the world. And you as a believer, you are God's gift to Christ. If you're not saved, I I urge you to receive this Christmas gift. Ask God for it. Come to Christ and he will freely give you This mysterious, miraculous, matchless gift. You can trust me. Or better, I should say, you can trust God. Because he's the one that promised the gift. Now, when my wife shops on Amazon, she doesn't know the quality of the items that she'll receive. So often I find myself at the UPS store shipping back bad items to Amazon. This is a gift that's never returned. No one that receives it can or will give it back. It's the gift that everyone needs and everyone keeps. It's a gift that God will not take back because God does not repent. Never have to worry about filling out an RMA. God's gifts are immutable. They are without repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for this wonderful gift that was given on Christmas Day. Lord, that that gift is still available to everyone, anyone who will come to Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins and placing their faith in him to take care of those sins and believing that Jesus died on the cross and arose from the grave. The Bible says they will be saved. 
And we thank you for Jesus Christ who came into this world. We thank you, Father, for giving us such a wonderful gift, a gift that is impossible for us to describe. And as we think about all the troubles that we have gone through this year, and we come down to the end at Christmas time, and it doesn't seem like it will be Christmas like other Christmases. It seems disappointing because of lack of fellowship and, again, all the troubles that go on around us. But none of that can be compared to the glory that we have in Jesus Christ. And that glory is always with us. We always have it on the inside. And we thank you, Lord, for the matchless gift that you gave that lifts us to the heights of glory every time that we think of Jesus Christ. Even as we were singing um, Christmas carols and other hymns in this service today, our hearts are just broken by it, thinking about what God did. God would give his only son. So we thank you for that, Lord. Bless your people. We pray that you'll bring us back together soon. And may we always be witnesses of this wonderful gift that you've given. May we tell others of the precious promises that are made in your word and point others to Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. Now, I'd like to give you a final benediction. This is from Corinthians, first Corinthians, chapter one. And we know how great that that God is. And we know how insignificant we are. And yet God uses the insignificant. He gave us this great, wonderful gift of Jesus Christ, the most powerful gift, the most the most needed gift. And Christ is exalted above others. But think about what he does with us who are unworthy sinners. Well, we have a a glimpse of this in first Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse twenty six. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in its presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Think of this gift, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. This is the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bbaptist.org.